for tuning in to this week's episode of the Speaking of Resilience podcast. I'm your host, Kate Madigan, with the Michigan Climate Action Network. Today, our guest is Douglas Jester. Douglas is among the most knowledgeable energy experts in Michigan, and he was appointed as co-chair for one of the work groups for the Governor's Climate Solutions Advisory Council. Douglas is a partner at Five Lakes Energy, specializing in utility regulation and energy policy. He regularly provides expert testimony at the Michigan Public Service Commission, and he's on the faculty at Michigan State University. He previously was the mayor of East Lansing and was a senior energy policy advisor at the Michigan Department of Energy, Labor and Economic Growth. He was also the director of strategic planning at the Michigan DNR, among a long list of other positions and accomplishments. In this episode, We talk about what caused the devastating power outages that recently happened in Texas. We talk about Governor Whitmer's climate executive order that sets bold goals for Michigan to achieve carbon neutrality and what that's going to take. We also talk about his work on the UP Energy Task Force, including how the Upper Peninsula can transition to clean electric heat sources and save money. I learned so much from this conversation and I think you will too. So without further ado, Here's my interview with Douglas Jester. It is really a pleasure to have you with us today, Douglas. Thank you for joining us on the podcast. My pleasure to be here. And I just want all of our listeners to know that Douglas Jester is really one of the best minds on energy policy in Michigan and a very humble person. So, um, but I'm really excited to be able to talk with you today and to dive into a lot of different topics. Looking forward to it. To start us off, recently, Texas experienced really devastating power outages, leaving millions of people without power and with their water service disrupted during some very cold temperatures. And this hit vulnerable communities the hardest. Would you summarize for us how this happened? Sure. The fundamental thing is that they experienced weather that was beyond what they planned for. It was much colder for a longer period of time uh, than is common in Texas. That led to uh, two things, pretty obvious. One is when it was colder, people wanted to use more energy. Those who heat with natural gas wanted to use more natural gas. Those that heat with electricity wanted to use more electricity. Uh, On the other side, the thing that was perhaps not expected Uh, is that a lot of the power system and a lot of the natural gas supply system failed to work uh, in those weather conditions. So um, a lot of uh, gas wells uh, have, you know, sort of pumps and compressors at the top. Those froze up. Um, A lot of the pipelines um, had operational problems uh, with their compressors. So there was a big reduction in natural gas supply. And of course, there's a there's reason to prioritize people's use of natural gas for heat over using it to produce electricity. Um, and then in addition, a lot of the natural gas fueled power plants were not weatherized for those temperatures and couldn't really operate anyway. So there was a big loss in natural gas-based electricity generation within Texas. There were problems at some other types of power plants, 
some of their wind turbines, the hydraulics were not designed for the cold temperatures. Some of the coal plants, the coal piles froze and they couldn't move coal into the plant to burn it. And um, one of the nuclear plants had operational problems because of the cold and had to shut down. So in the aggregate, Texas lost more than half of the electricity supply that they would have expected to have available. And the last piece of this puzzle is Texas um, has long had a separate transmission grid from the rest of the country. It's a deliberate choice they made so as to avoid regulation uh, because they would be in interstate commerce. Uh, and that has let them do some things that they wanted to do. But one of the consequences was or is that in these circumstances, they couldn't call on their neighbors. There's not the physical connection to deliver electricity into that part of Texas from other parts of the country, even if they um, you know, had the market arrangements and wanted to. So they were stuck with what generation capacity they had. And it wasn't enough and created a real hardship for, you know, many people in Texas. Yes. And there's been a lot of misinformation spread about this. I mean, the Texas governor even early on went on television and claimed that falsely claimed that it was renewable energy was to blame. And you point out there was some impact from this weather on on wind, but the reality was that most of the power outages were caused by um, plants fueled by gas. Is that correct? Yes. The the loss of generation capacity in total was about 35 gigawatts, and about 30 of that was loss of either gas supply or uh, operational capability of gas plants. I think a lot of our listeners might be wondering, you know, we heard about the grid, as you explained, being part of the problem in Texas. Are we susceptible to something like this happening in Michigan? And also, what can we do to make the grid more resilient in Michigan? Yes. We, we have some risks. We don't have quite the same risk uh, that they had in Texas. Um, Michigan is part of what's called the Eastern Interconnect. The transmission grid is connected throughout the Eastern United States all the way out to basically the plains just on this side of the Rocky Mountains. And then there's, a, there's another transmission grid on the west side of that line that is called the Western Interconnect. So, so we are connected uh, to all parts of the Eastern United States, but there are uh, limits to the capacity of the grid to transport power between other places in Michigan. And it's uh, more limited in Michigan's case than is usual because of being on peninsulas. So we are connected to Indiana uh, in the Southwest, uh, to Ohio in the Southeast, and indeed to Ontario across the Detroit and St. Clair rivers. There's currently no connection and because of a, a break in the line, but historically a very thin connection between the lower peninsula and the upper peninsulas. And then the upper peninsula is connected only to Wisconsin. So, and each of those has some, you know, physical limit, the number and size of the wires, basically. Um, in the way that utilities are regulated, uh, we refer to it as resource adequacy. There's a planning process for making sure that there's enough generation capacity for the expected peak load plus a reserve margin 
And then uh, Michigan participates in what's called the Mid-Continent Independent System Operator or MISO uh, market. And they calculate uh, what's called the local resource requirements. Basically, how much of the peak generation that we need from Michigan has to be within Michigan because of the limitations of the, the grid to, to import electricity. And our local resource requirement is typically around 90% of our peak need, which is much higher local resource requirement than is typical uh, of our neighboring states. It's because we're in this peninsula. So we are more uh, required to depend on ourselves than other places. And that creates risks similar to those uh, in Texas. And some things that we we talk about when we talk about reducing, you know, reducing the need for um, more power generation, uh, like demand response and distributed energy, these also are connected to a more resilient grid. So we don't have problems like we saw in Texas, correct? Yes, they are. The, the, the problem in Texas of not having enough power generation capacity uh, is very rarely the cause of power outages. The more common cause is uh, something disrupting the path of the electricity from the power plants to the customer, and particularly the local distribution system. So we in Michigan have a sort of a mediocre frequency of outages, uh, about average for the country. We have a much slower recovery of power when we do have an outage. We're typically second to fourth worst in the country year to year on that metric. But all of those outages that we experience living here in Michigan are really because of storms or mechanical failures in the distribution system, not because we don't have enough power plants. And building more power plants doesn't help that problem. Um, strengthening the grid does. And having on-site generation and storage so that you can operate when the grid is down also helps. Historically, that was expensive, but the advancement of technology, we're on the verge of it being very practical for many people to have some amount of on-site solar and storage so that they can meet some of their needs, not typically all of them, but some of their needs when the grid is down. And that would certainly make them more resilient. Uh, and we can do that for key uh, community institutions and facilities to make communities more resilient. So in addition to making sure we have enough transmission connection to the rest of the world to provide backup when we don't have enough power supply, the other big direction that we need to go for greater resilience is to make smart use of distributed generation and storage. I want to shift gears and talk about the governor's climate executive order. So in September, Governor Whitmer signed an executive order and an executive director directive setting a goal for Michigan to be carbon neutral by 2050 and also a goal to cut greenhouse gas emissions 28% by 2025. So let's start with the carbon neutrality goal. Can you talk about what it means for Michigan to be carbon neutral economy-wide, what that looks like? Sure. Um, first of all, everyone should understand that this is an audacious goal, 
but one that we probably can achieve. Um, so the governor's choice of net zero by 2050 is probably about the best that we can do, but uh, doable. Uh, it's also in line with what climate science tells us that we and people all around the world need to do. So it's a well-grounded goal, but it's one we're going to have to work hard to achieve. So it's helpful to understand where our greenhouse gas emissions are now. Um, first, the the 28% reduction is from 2005. We've already achieved about a 20% reduction. So we clearly are on the path. Um, we just need to both keep going and go faster in order to achieve that 2050 goal of uh, net zero. As of right now, about 10% of our greenhouse gas emissions uh, in Michigan are uh, from fertilizers used in farming and from industrial chemicals that uh, are released in, in manufacturing or in use that are not carbon dioxide. They're, you know, specialized industrial chemicals, things like refrigerants that we don't yet have good substitutes for. So 10% is of, of our greenhouse gas emissions will be challenging, though we have 30 years to figure out how to <laughs> reduce them. Mm -hmm. um, there are things that we can do to actually capture uh, greenhouse gases that are already in the atmosphere. Uh, and uh, so call, we call it sequestration. It sequester them in places where they don't re-enter the atmosphere. Those opportunities, though, are quantitatively limited, and so we probably will need to use those to offset some of the hardest emissions there, that we have to reduce or mitigate. The other 90% of the problem is related to our Way, the ways we produce and use energy. So 90% of our greenhouse gas emissions effectively is a uh, result of burning fossil fuels. And roughly a third of that is in each of three main areas. Um, transportation fuels, slightly more than a third. Power generation is about a third. And then heating in buildings and industrial processes is the other third. When you look at it in terms of what the, the fossil fuels are for transportation, it's almost entirely um, products made from oil. So gasoline, diesel fuel, things like that. Um, when you look at uh, heating in buildings uh, and in uh, industrial processes, it's mostly natural gas, though in rural areas of the state, it's also propane. And then there's a little bit of fuel oil used, but that's a tiny part of, of that picture. And then for uh, production of power, um, coal uh, is still the largest source of greenhouse gas emissions from producing power. Uh, but coal has been going down and natural gas has been going up. Uh, so we're looking at uh, 
predominantly those two fuels. There are a few other odds and ends, uh, petroleum coke, which is a byproduct of petroleum refining for uh, transportation fuels that is burned in some power plants, some things like that. So we have to work on each one of those um, and make great strides by 2050. So we probably should walk through each one, but, uh, but that's the general picture. That's great. And, you know, I think it's a great visual that you can picture a pie and each of those, you know, those three that you pointed out, transportation, electricity generation and um, heating are each a third. And then there's this sliver of 10%, which are the really, really hard ones to get to. And that's where we should, we should save our sequestration technology for that. I love that. So yeah, I would love it if you could walk through those, um, those three pieces and um, how we can, what that really looks like, especially as we're looking at 2050 to a lot of people that sounds very far off, but the analysis that I've seen that you've done shows that to reach this goal, we have to hit some really big benchmarks much sooner than that. So I'd love it if you can talk about what that looks like. Sure. So, so 2050 is far off in human lives and in uh, technology change and that sort of thing. But a lot of the investments that we make are fairly long lived. And that's the thing we have to keep in mind. So 30 years from now is really only two life cycles for a typical vehicle. It's only two life cycles for typical heating equipment. It's less than a full life cycle for a new power plant, uh, which is why we have to be acting now uh, in order to address achieving net zero by 2050. And when you talk about two life cycles for a typical vehicle, that means... Mm -hmm. The typical vehicle, I buy a car, it's going to last 10, 15 years. Yes. Okay. Yeah, the, the actual average depends on the vehicle class, but it's basically about 15 years. Um, and furnaces, same thing, they're, they're about 15 years. So people will buy be buying furnaces this year, and then they'll be replacing those furnaces once before 2050. Okay. So that's really what I'm talking about. If we, whatever the technology is that we're going to be using in 2050 that doesn't emit um, greenhouse gases, in order to be at near zero or, or net zero in 2050, basically that last generation before 2050 has to be what we're buying and installing. So if, if you think of vehicles, the predominant technology option seems to be electric vehicles. That means that by about 2035, every electric vehicle sold or every vehicle sold needs to be electric um, or some other technology that doesn't emit greenhouse gases. Similarly, for every furnace or heating uh, appliance that people buy, by about 2035, they all need to be electric or otherwise not emitting greenhouse gases and so on. So that's the basic framing that we have to think about uh, as we work on the plan that the governor called for to be at net zero by 2050. We need to be buying and selling the right stuff by about 2035. Great. And you are the, um, 
so the so the governor's executive order also created a climate solutions advisory council and yes. this body is charged with overseeing the creation and the implementation of a michigan healthy climate plan which is going to serve as the action plan for how we get here how our state can transition to this economy-wide carbon neutrality and you have been appointed as the co-chair of the energy production, transmission, distribution, and storage work group for this council to lead this area of work. So sets you up to focus in particular on the electricity and how we're gonna move the electric sector rapidly um, to achieve this goal. So can you talk about, um, you know, electricity is, you know, of all of these three is the lowest hanging fruit, although it's still a very tall order to yes. decarbonize the electric sector. Um, what what does it look like? How are we going? How quickly do we need to move with the electric sector? Mm -hmm. So first, let me say that the that particular work group, we will certainly address electricity, but we also have to address essentially winding down um, the systems that produce and deliver petroleum and natural gas. Um, and so some of what we'll be looking at is, say, as we electrify uh, vehicles, that increases the consumption of electricity and reduces the consumption of oil products. And how do we manage that transition? That's going to be one of the more challenging and really interesting parts of our assignment. But uh, at bottom, you're correct. We really have to work out, you know, what is the plan to elect, you know, produce, distribute, make available to, to these new uses, the electricity that is needed to substitute for the fuels we're using today. So some of it is that we'll be projecting an increase in the amount of electricity that needs to be supplied. Uh, offset by what efficiency we can gain and how we use electricity today. Um, and then we have to look at how we supply that electricity without producing greenhouse gas emissions uh, in producing electricity. So new technologies are always possible, but the technologies we have today to produce electricity um, are coal, combustion to make steam and drive a turbine, um, several different ways of using natural gas, both of those produce lots of greenhouse gases. And while there is research on ways to capture the carbon emissions and sequester it, so far we don't have any technology that looks um, reliable or cost-effective for that purpose. Uh, there's ongoing research, maybe that will come, but as of right now, we need to be acting as though by 2050, we can no longer use coal or natural gas uh, fueled power plants. The technologies we have that do not produce significant greenhouse gas emissions are uh, nuclear, uh, solar, wind, and hydropower. Um, our opportunities to use hydropower in Michigan are essentially saturated. We have a lot of dams, those that are capable of producing power mostly are, and even if we converted others, um, they wouldn't produce very much power. So we're really down to nuclear, wind, and solar. Um, 
And again, there's a lot of research going on. There's the possibility that new nuclear technologies would become viable. But right now, nuclear simply cannot compete on economic grounds with wind and solar. So as we plan for a future without uh, significant emissions from the power sector, we're mostly planning for an all-renewable future. We, we get about 12% of our electricity in Michigan from nuclear today, and those existing plants will certainly continue to operate for a while. Uh, their licenses, the current licenses to operate, end typically in the mid-2030s. So one of the open questions will be whether those can and should be relicensed to operate somewhat longer or whether they'll shut down you know, in 2035. That's a actually quite a big quantitative question about what we have to do uh, over the next 15 years. It's whether we've got to be replacing those nuclear plants by shutdown dates in the mid-2030s or whether we have longer. In any case, we're really talking about a pretty large-scale build-out of the use of uh, solar and wind to produce electricity. Uh, and figuring out the the path for doing that will be a big part of um, our task uh, with Climate Solutions Council. The other part of it is that we've invested in these plants that exist today that have expected lives beyond, in some cases, 2050. And so we're going to have to figure out how to retire them. There are financial tools we can use to make that uh, almost free. Um, to utility customers, but the closer we get to when they retire, the harder it is to make those costs go away, and more likely we are to create a burden uh, on utility customers. So I think we'll need to pay some early attention uh, in this process to how we retire the impaired value of those traditional power plants that we're not going to be able to use as long as was expected when they were built. And then finally, there's some challenges associated with operating a grid that has a high component of renewables. Uh, and we'll have to do a lot of work on, on that topic. It's pretty easy to see how you can just build a whole lot more solar and wind, though we will run into some land use challenges. But that's just a question of, of doing it, if you will. Um, Balancing the grid and providing electricity when and where people need it while providing or producing electricity when the wind, sun shines and the wind blows uh, will be sort of the core challenge for the electric system. And I'm really glad that you pointed out earlier um, that these goals are audacious. They also line up with what science tells us that we have to do. And they're also achievable. They're going to be hard, but achievable. I love that. And I also, I also want to add to that, that they also line up, like the 2025 goal lines up to what we've committed to do as part of the Paris Climate Agreement, what all of the, the countries have agreed to do and what the governor um, signed on to as part of the U.S. Um, Climate Council. Um, That's correct. And so the 2025 goal, the 28% cut in greenhouse gas emissions by 2025, to achieve that, are we going to? Are we looking at um, closing some coal-fired plants early as well? So the, the opportunity to reduce greenhouse gas emissions in other sectors is limited. Um, you know, the 
electrification of vehicles depends on vehicles being available for sale. And we will see lots and lots of models rolled out the next two or three years. But um, by the time they're made available and people buy them, we're not going to see a big change in the number in use in 2025. Same thing with buildings. We can do if added insulation and reduce our use of gas and perhaps we can electrify a few, but for the most part, the dynamic to reduce carbon emissions is going to be reducing it from the power sector where we already have the tools in place and know how to do that. So in Michigan, we've been retiring coal plants um, on both environmental and economic grounds for the last decade. We've retired about 40% of our coal capacity. And there are several plants already scheduled for retirement in the next few years. The uh, Presque Isle power plant in the Upper Peninsula has already been retired. Um, consumers retired several plants about uh, eight years ago. They will be retiring the Carn uh, coal units uh, up in the uh, Saginaw Bay area uh, in 2023. DTE is retiring River Rouge, St. Clair, uh, and Trenton Channel power plants between now and 2023. And those retirements and then replacing with clean energy, which is what we're doing uh, for the most part, uh, with the exception of DTE building a new gas plant, um, gets us most of the way. Um, we pretty easily make the, the power system reduction of 28% from 2005 and make some contribution from those uh, retirements to doing it for the whole economy, which is what the, the, the goal really is. But we're going to have to work a little bit harder. And so uh, if we say we're going to ask the power system to step up to getting us to 28% reduction economy-wide, we do have to retire um, additional power plants, additional coal plants, replacing them with clean energy. Um, the uh, Consumers Campbell plant has three units. Two of those are already scheduled for retirement in 2030. We could move those up to 2025. Uh, and uh, DTE has... Uh, two units at the Bell River plant that are currently scheduled to retire in 2029 and 2030. We could move those up, one of those up to about 2025. And the Lansing Board of Water and Light is already committed to retiring the um, Erickson plant by 2025. If we do those and replace them with clean energy, we make the target. Right. And, you know, I just have to observe as someone who's been working on and, and watching and advocating for transition to clean energy for a long time. It's just so remarkable to hear about all of this, these planned closings of these coal plants. Um, it is, yeah, it is a pretty rapid transition that we're, we're starting to see, which is exciting. It is. Um, interesting story. Uh, before uh, the Obama administration proposed the clean power plan. Most utilities would re just really couldn't contemplate a future without their coal plants um, because they're highly dependent on them. And their traditional practices told them that 
that was the way to produce relatively cheap, reliable power. Um, when the clean power plan came along, uh, and the utilities were facing the possibility that those regulations would go into effect. They started doing planning. And interestingly to them, found out that they could actually achieve pretty substantial reductions in greenhouse gas emissions um, and still have reliable electric grid and not very much more costly. Um, Jerry Anderson, who was at the time the president chief executive officer of DTE, actually went to conferences in the utility industry and talked about that experience that DTE had. So when they started to look at it, they discovered that they actually could do this. And it led first to them embracing that they could achieve the clean power plan and then to their later announcement of their carbon reduction goals as a utility because they realized wow. and forced to do the analysis that this was doable. Wow. That is an interesting story. Yeah. It's interesting how policy can work, even though we, even though we didn't get the clean power plan, like it, it set in motion what we're seeing now. Right. Um, a couple of things you mentioned that I wanted to follow up on the, um, the part of your work on this work group that is going to deal with winding down the oil production and, and distribution. I have to ask, how do you see the connection with line five? I mean, there, there's this proposal to build this oil tunnel to operate for 99 more years. Do you see that as being part of the work that the work group will do? I'm not sure how much we'll focus on line five itself, but if you say we're going to eliminate carbon emissions from vehicles, um, no one claims to have a technology that captures carbon emissions from vehicles and allows it to be sequestered. So that means we're going to stop burning fossil fuels in vehicles. We may use battery electric. We may use hydrogen fuel cells. I don't think anyone's really suggesting anything else. But that means we're going to stop using oil. And if we ramp up the electrification of vehicles by 2035, and then from then on are only buying electric vehicles, um, what we'll see is a gradual weaning uh, from the use of oil products uh, for transportation. And there are some other uses of oil that we're going to have to work through, industrial uses and so on. But Basically, we're at our at or near our peak use of oil in Michigan, in the U.S., and probably globally within maybe now, maybe within the next few years. But then that usage will start to drop off as people switch from gasoline and diesel vehicles and, and things of, of that sort. So that will mean less and less demand for oil products in this region. And line five is one of the pipelines that serves a cluster of refineries in Toledo, Detroit, and Sarnia. And as we need less product from them, presumably what we'll see is those closing one by one rather than just reducing operations across the board. That's the economics would suggest that they'd be closings one by one. Okay. And that would then also mean less crude oil needing to be delivered to those refineries 
through line five or alternative routes. So the use would diminish and presumably by 2050, we would essentially not be transporting oil in this region anymore. So whatever happens with line five, the expected life of line five as petroleum transport is probably not more than 30 years and could be uh, significantly less. Okay, great. That really lines up with um, what, what we've been expecting as well. Thank you. And um, the Climate Solutions Advisory Council there um, and the work group leaders are meeting soon to begin? Yes, we're having a, an organizational meeting uh, this week, the last week of February. Um, and then we'll be scrambling to get work on, organized and underway. Uh, we're supposed to deliver preliminary draft report in September and a final report on the first version of this plan uh, by the end of 2021. Uh, the council continues after that. I'm certain that there will be both revisions of the plan as we learn more uh, and uh, needs to answer additional questions uh, beyond those that we're able to address in this first year. Okay, great. Thanks for that. So yeah, you have a, you have a lot of work in front of you for this. We do indeed. <laughs> And then also you are also an appointed member of the UP Energy Task Force, which has been um, working now for two years, close to two years, as I, if I'm right, if I'm recalling this right. Yeah, that's correct. This was also appointed by Governor Whitmer, primarily in response to questions about the importance of the Line 5 oil pipeline to the UP's propane supply, and also to look at the energy future of this region. And this has been really important work focused on a region of our state with very high energy costs. And so can you talk about some of the big takeaways um, from the research and the work that has happened here about, especially about moving to clean energy in the Upper Peninsula? Of course. So the uh, task force delivered a report focused entirely on propane in March of 2020. And we will deliver our final report before we disband uh, in March of 2021. Uh, and that final report will address all of the other issues um, as well as a little bit of revisiting of propane. So the propane report um, can, can really summarize this way. Um, propane right now is, is a critical fuel for uh, Good number of people in the Upper Peninsula, about 22,000 households and businesses rely on propane as their heating fuel. And typically, if they are using it for heating, they also are using it for cooking or clothes dryers or you know things like that. Uh, and it is a relatively expensive fuel. So it's already challenging uh, in some respects to be a user of propane. Propane is subject to supply risks, even aside from uh, the fact that we currently get propane in the Upper Peninsula from Line 5. Um, we've had times in the past when propane supply in the Upper Midwest was disrupted. And that drives the price up and can be expensive for people and can create you know, some health and safety risks as well. So we really pointed out that 
we needed to be thinking about both efficiency uh, in people's use of propane and about ways of having more storage available, either in tanks on site for the customer or uh, elsewhere, so as to minimize the risks to people uh, if there's a disruption of supply. And then we looked at alternative ways of supplying propane. And while it's true that much of the propane in the Upper Peninsula comes from Line 5, it's also true that the pricing uh, appears to be done by the providers so as to just keep that price barely under what it would cost to deliver propane by rail and truck. So if we were, if line five were to be shut down uh, or to fail, uh, disrupting the current propane supply, it, it is possible to get a new propane supply at a cost that is not very much greater than the cost of the current supply. But if that were to happen suddenly, there'd be a bit of a scramble and some risks to customers of whether they would be able to get the propane they need, uh, at least at a, at a reasonable price. So we recommended some steps the state could take to encourage the development of alternative ways of delivering propane in the Upper Peninsula uh, in the event that Line 5 either fails or is shut down. Moving on to the report that we will complete uh, in the next couple of months, the work of the task force is not complete, so I'm not speaking for the task force in describing this, but we have looked uh, you know, broadly at energy systems and supply uh, in the UP. And the first thing to observe is that while uh, electricity is pretty expensive in parts of the Upper Peninsula, it's not uniformly expensive. Industrial rates are about average or even lower than in uh, the Lower Peninsula, depending on which particular utility you look at. Uh, and high prices for electricity for residential customers and small business customers are predominantly Upper, upper Peninsula Power Company, an investor-owned utility serving the central part of the UP. The other, most of the other utilities in the UP are not all that expensive. There are a couple of cooperatives that have very high rates, and that reflects that they serve very rural areas where sort of a long way between houses and buildings, and therefore it takes a lot of infrastructure per customer in order to serve them. The other thing about um, the costs of electricity uh, are that, that we found are that um, the average UP customer uses a lot less electricity than is typical in the Lower Peninsula or in other places within the region. And that's because they don't use much air conditioning and they, um, really don't use electric heat very much. And given the high price, they conserve electricity as much as they can. But a lot of the costs of, of delivering electricity are fixed with respect to the volume. And so if everybody used more electricity, the price would go down, which means there's an interesting opportunity 
to electrify heating and transportation and reduce everybody's electricity rates. Uh, so some of our take on this situation is that for reasons of mitigating climate change and uh, reducing the price risk that Upper Peninsula residents face for fossil fuels, we should be considering electrification. But by doing so, we also can, can lower electric rates. That's really interesting. And can you talk about, can you briefly talk about how, what that looks like? Because I don't know if a lot of people have experienced like what a high efficiency heat pump can do. It's a newer technology, but it can work really well. Yes. So a heat pump is kind of like, well, every refrigerator has heat pumps in it. And what the refrigerator heat pumps do is to pump heat out of the refrigerator and into the room uh, that it sits in or the garage that it sits in, wherever it happens to be. And then, of course, heat soaks back in through the exterior of the refrigerator and the insulation around it um, so that periodically that heat pump has to run to move heat out of the refrigerator. So that's a, that's a heat pump everybody experiences day in and day out. Uh, and refrigerators used to be relatively inefficient, but modern refrigerators are extraordinarily efficient at keeping cool, um, both by improvements in their insulation and also by the improving technology of heat pumps. Both of those scale up to houses and other buildings. So uh, technology exists now to make houses, uh, to cost-effectively retrofit houses so that they simply need less heat, um, the order of 30 to 50% less heat. And then we can use heat pumps that instead of producing heat, move heat from the outdoors to the in indoors, uh, sort of the reverse of what the refrigerator does. And, in, and do so using a lot less energy than if you say directly heated with resistance electric heat, or if you have a furnace burning either natural gas or propane. So we often summarize all of that with something called the coefficient of performance, which is the ratio of the usable heat that you get to the amount of energy you put in. And modern heat pumps um, across a pretty wide range of temperatures give us a coefficient of performance that's on the order of two and a half or three. So you get three times as much energy as heat as you actually use to run the heat pump. And when you do that, electricity becomes cost competitive with, certainly with propane and probably eventually, though not yet, uh, with natural gas as a heating fuel. Okay. So, so that's what the heat pump revolution is all about. I love that, the heat pump revolution. And as you're talking, I'm just picturing so many jobs, like retrofitting, insulating, making all of these homes more efficient, and then also installing heat pumps to replace old furnaces and boilers. Um, yes. so pretty exciting part of it, too. Yeah, installing heat pumps to replace furnaces um, is going to be similar to replacing an old furnace with a new furnace. So that part of it will be 
a change in the work of people who install furnaces, in effect. Um, but the insulation part of it mostly hasn't been happening, and that's new jobs. And that's work that's typically done by local contractors uh, and that pays for itself in reduced energy bills. So it's something where basically everybody but the fossil fuel supplier wins. The owner of the building can pay off the loan for the improvements with the savings from the heating bill and then some, and so they have more money. The occupants of the building, whether it be the owner or somebody else, have a more comfortable building. Uh, and there are real and measurable health benefits, um, reduced occurrence of diseases, things like that. Uh, and then you have local contractors who can do the work of installing that additional insulation and other you know, efficiency measures. They get income from it, which circulates in the community where the money we spend on fossil fuels leaves the community and, and typically leaves the state and goes elsewhere. Yeah. So there are very large economic benefits to be had by focusing on energy efficiency throughout the state, but particularly in the Upper Peninsula. That's great. Um, and meanwhile, we are doing what we need to do to, to solve the climate crisis. So. Yes. Um, I could talk to you all day, but I know you have a lot of other things to do. So as we wrap up for our listeners, what are some of the best ways that people can take action this year if they want to move forward, um, get involved with these efforts, move forward climate solutions and clean energy? There are things people can do as personal responsibility. Um, they can seek out and implement energy efficiency measures in their own homes, and they can do so just by focusing on those that pay for themselves. Um, when they are ready to buy their next vehicle, they certainly should look at and consider electric vehicles um, unless um, they can't find a model that meets their needs. Uh, they will actually probably be better off buying an electric vehicle. The sticker price right now will be higher for an electric vehicle. Uh, and that'll probably be true until about 2025 or 2026. But Consumer Reports did an analysis last year looking at all of the costs of owning a vehicle, maintenance, um, fuels, and things like that. And a current electric vehicle requires less cash outlay in the first year than a current internal combustion engine because you pay a little more uh, sticker price and therefore on the loan, but you reduce your maintenance costs and your fuel costs. And so you really are better off first year. So people need to think a little bit past that sticker price, but most people can find an electric vehicle that meets their needs and can afford it. And then finally, um, as you start to replace uh, furnaces, not asking people to replace them sooner than they otherwise would yet, but um, consider heat pumps. There are three types of heat pumps that people should be aware of, just briefly. They're geothermal, which is the most efficient, but generally the most expensive to install. 
Um, there's uh, well, well water-based heat pumps if you happen to have a well where you just pump some additional water from your well and pull the heat out of it, lowering that water temperature down uh, to about 35 or 36 degrees, not to freezing, and then discharging it separately from your wastewater and it soaks back into the ground. And that uh, is uh, not very much more expensive than a furnace replacement and is more efficient than to use. And then finally, there are air source heat pumps, the most common, which is called a mini split uh, that just pulls heat out of the air, out, outdoor air. And those will work in much of Michigan, um, but might require some form of supplementary heat in the coldest parts of Michigan. Uh, but different, unfortunately, different companies sell those different options. So if you just call up your HVAC contractor and say, I need a new furnace, that's what they will supply to you. You need to also call up the heat pump company and ask for quote and make your comparison. Okay. Um, so do those things. And then I guess the, the other point is individual action is incredibly important, especially on those things. But in the end, we also have to decide as a society to take the steps in our infrastructure that will support comfortable, healthy, and wealthy lifestyles um, without using fossil fuels. And that's public policy. And so be supportive of efforts of Governor Whitmer and others like her, you know, to, to do the hard work of figuring out how to make this transition uh, and take the policy steps that are necessary. Great. Thank you so much. It's like sitting with my favorite professor and like <laughs> getting to ask you any questions. Well, thank you. Yeah. Really appreciate your time today and all that you're doing. It's an important mission. Um, been working at it for, for a while and it looks now like uh, we can we can do this. Uh, so it's pretty exciting to invest the time and, and see the results. Okay. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Good to talk to you. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Speaking of Resilience podcast. You can find more episodes of the Speaking of Resilience podcast at our website, brownworkcenter.org slash podcast, miclimateaction.org slash podcast, or on all major podcast platforms. If you appreciate this content and want more of it, stay up to date by subscribing to the podcast wherever you listen in. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a review. This helps other listeners find the Speaking of Resilient podcast. Like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, at Groundwork Center and at MI Climate Action. Speaking of Resilience is created by the Groundwork Center for Resilient Communities and the Michigan Climate Action Network. This episode was produced by Taylor Kramer of Cold Shower Media in collaboration with Nick Loud of the Boardman Review.